This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon and New Relic. On this two-part episode, I chat with Mark Nunnenkoven about serverless privacy and compliance. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 71. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I am speaking with Mark Nunnenkoven. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So you are the Vice President of Cloud Research at Trend Micro. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what Trend Micro is all about? Yeah, so um, Trend Micro is a uh, global secure, uh, cybersecurity uh, provider, and we make uh, products for consumers all the way through to uh, massive enterprises. Um, and I focus in our research wing. So we have a really large uh, research um, component. Uh, there's about uh, 1,400 researchers in the company, uh, which is a lot of fun because uh, we get to dive into the minutia of anything and everything uh, related to cybersecurity. So from the latest uh, cyber uh, crime uh, and scam, uh, to uh, where I focus, which is in the cloud. So a lot more uh, what I'm looking at is how organizations are adapting to the new reality of uh, things like the shared responsibility model, keeping pace with um, cloud service providers, uh, adjusting to DevOps philosophies, that kind of thing, um, which is a lot of fun. And for me, I come from a very traditional security background if there is such a thing. Um, I, uh, I've been at Trend for a little over eight years. Before that, I was with the Canadian federal government for a decade, um, doing all sorts of different security work, uh, a lot of uh, nation state uh, attacks and defense, things like that. Um, and my background in education is actually in uh, forensic investigation. So uh, that you know, nerd in the lab uh, on your favorite crime drama, when they come up you know, with the burned out hard drives and are like, fix this, and somehow they do. It's all BS, but that's technically what I do. Very cool. All right, so I have wanted you uh, on the show for a very long time because I've been following the stuff that you've been doing. I love the videos that you do, the blogs that you write. Um, you're just out there, and, and I know you sort of, um, you're on the edge of the serverless space. I know you do a lot of stuff in the cloud as well, but you're obviously into serverless as well. And just recently, I came across um, this impact assessment video series that you're doing. I don't know if it's a regular series or whatever, but it it was really good. And, and you were talking about um, Fortnite and Apple, and I want to get into that. But really, what made me, um, you know, think about things a little bit deeper that goes beyond just some of these surface level. I think billionaires arguing with billionaires um, is <laughs> this idea of privacy, right? And how important our online privacy is. And I thought it would be really interesting to talk about how serverless and privacy, since you know it's in the cloud, is all the stuff that you're sharing. Um, you know where that kind of aligns. So. Uh, so let's start, first of all, why is privacy or online privacy so important? Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's a really broad and great question. Um, so yeah, this 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 new video series I'm doing, impact assessment, is going to be regular. Um, I was doing a, a live stream called Mornings with Mark for the last few years. Did I think like 200 episodes, um, where I was mainly talking uh, about cybersecurity issues of the day, and a lot of those are privacy. And and where I wanted to go with this new series was just a little broader audience, which is why you know Apple and Fortnite and Twitter hack and stuff like that are coming up because I think privacy is, is a really important aspect, um, and it mirrors security. 
great. You can't have one without the other. Um, and it's directly related to the audience, to people who are building in a serverless space or in any space. Um, but privacy, you know, a traditional definition of privacy is really um, the your right as a person to not be observed, um, essentially to be alone and to have control over your data and your, and your well-being. And when you go into the digital world, it's infinitely more complicated than a physical world, right? You can you can lock yourself away in a room in the real world and be relatively confident that nobody is uh, invading that space, that you have kind of control over that space. So if you want to, you know, just sit there and veg out, if you want to read a book, that's an activity just amongst yourself, right? Um, when you come to the digital world, everything we do leaves a trail somewhere. Um, there are tons of exposures, potentially. You as a user don't really have a ton of control over your data. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this video video series and with a bunch of my other work was just uh, enlighten people to help uh, sort of expose this so that they're aware. And um, because one of the challenges I get on, on the security side of what I do, and it directly relates to the privacy side, is that people assume there are correct decisions. And really, the only incorrect decision is one that you are unaware that you're making. Um, so you could make the argument that, you know, it's okay that you're tracked everywhere on the internet. And I think you, you can, you know, the trade-off you get for the free services may be correct. But if you're unaware that that is the trade-off, I think that's the problem. So that's the intention behind this video series is to look at privacy issues, to look at some security issues, to help people just make a conscious decision instead of just being pulled along for the ride. Right. Yeah, no, I think that, and I think that that's probably something that a lot of people miss is that people say, well, I'll sign up for Facebook and I will share every photo, every place that I visit, mm -hmm. all my friends, all my likes, all my dislikes. And what I think people say is, oh, well, you know, whatever, it's free. And they don't realize that they're the product. And most of that is because they are giving up so much of their privacy. And it's actually funny. Uh, I, this just happened the other day to me and I didn't even realize, I knew it was, ha I knew it was coming out, but Chrome just released a new update. Um, that mm -hmm. uh, that blocked third-party cookies if they weren't, uh, I think you had to have like secure on and some of these other things. So no user is going to have any idea what that actually means. But yeah. what happened for something we were doing is we were loading um, a third-party cookie behind the scenes yes. for something and all of a sudden that stopped working. And so the whole flow of this like mod, you know, mod, uh, module or this uh, modal pop-up thing completely broke. Um, yep. because of that extra thing of security. And it's in, I remember way back in the days of early web development, dealing with IE5 and IE6 and the browser wars, like what works on this browser and what works on that browser. Mm -hmm. Now privacy seems to be the new browser war thing that um, yeah. you know, are conflating those two things. Um, but anyway, so, so that's one thing, but let's go to this idea of the Fortnite and Apple thing, because mm -hmm. I have two kids, um, two daughters that they've played Fortnite more this summer than I, I think, I, I don't know how anybody could play Fortnite more than that. Um, but they, uh, they love it. And then I told them the other day, cause you and I were talking, I saw your uh, assessment video about the, about, um, uh, you know, them not releasing it on iOS because of the, mm -hmm. the whole Apple store thing and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, but, but why, why is it a good thing, I guess? Um, and maybe we can talk more about Fortnite. I mean, I'm not really into it. I know you are, but I'm not really into it. But maybe we could talk more about um, why the re why that review process, why that purchase process through Google Play or through um, the the App Store, why is that important to your security and to your privacy? 
Yeah, and I thought this was really interesting. So I got, I got into Fortnite a couple years ago when I did a, um, a piece on it for my regular radio column here in Canada. And uh, I thought it was interesting because it's a it's a microtransaction model game. So it's always taking a lot of money from people, um, but not to win the game. It's purely cosmetic. And I wow. thought that in general, especially as a parent myself, I thought that was a really positive thing because it wasn't like a bunch of these games where you need to pay to actually have a realistic chance at winning. And the only thing you're paying for in Fortnite is to make things look different. There's no performance difference. Right. And since that, then, uh, you know, uh, there was this great Saturday Night Live sketch a couple years back uh, on Fortnite where, you know, this this character Adam Driver was playing was solely there to, to learn how to be better than the stepfather to show off to the kids. And I always think like that, that's me, even though, you know, uh, just trying to be cool to the kids. Uh, but I do play it regular. And I thought it was interesting, you know, being uh, pulled up in this drama because most of the drama between Epic and Apple and Google uh, somewhat right now are, is related around the business side because the right. Apple policy uh, and Google's the exact same, but we'll just use Apple because it's more um, prominent right now. The policy basically says as a condition of being in the app store, you need to follow a whole bunch of these rules. And the rules that Epic, uh, Epic is calling out is the one around transactions. And it says basically, if you're taking money through the app, so directly through the app, Apple gets a 30% cut. That's their uh, fee as a middleman for bringing you customers. And as a part of that, Apple will facilitate the transaction. So for Apple users, you're well familiar with this. For Android users, it's similar. But that's why you can use Face ID to authorize a transaction through Apple Pay. And you don't actually have to enter in new passwords. You don't have to give them your credit card information. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff is handled by Apple as a proxy for those businesses. And so Epic, making uh, they make uh, north of $300 million a month from Fortnite. Um, and they said, you know what, 30% of uh, the chunk we make from mobile, which is north of 100 million, uh, is too much. So they right. are, are contesting that and they actually have plans and in their legal filings are saying, we're not going for the money, we want the right to be our own app store. So there's a really interesting business case there and you know they're, they're really petty and low blows, which is fascinating and fun to watch from the, the outside. Um, but I did a video in the assessment around what do we actually get from a security and privacy perspective? Because everybody's saying like, oh, 30% is a huge amount, even though you know it's not uncommon in the retail space or in other business transactions. But there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind behind the scenes and that's really beneficial to us. So when you submit as a developer, Apple makes sure that you know there's no obvious malware, though this week there was a case where they actually approved malware, um, which is you know one out of eight years of App Store, which is not bad. Right. Uh, they look for, uh, for uh, malware. They look for um, using undocumented APIs, which could create vulnerabilities. They look for um, your uh, use of personal data, which is what I really dug into, was that they have restrictions around what developers can do with your data, how they can track you, what they have to ask permission for. Um, and that actually tr goes to your transactions as well, because a lot of the stuff that happens behind the scenes that we don't even think about is when you go to a store, like a retail store, if you still can in these days, uh, and use your credit card, most of the larger retailers actually track those that credit card usage within their physical store. So they will uh, take a hash of your number instead of storing your actual number, and they will look for that reuse to create a profile for you if you're not actually signed up for the loyalty rewards thing. Same thing mm -hmm. happens online. So not only is the money important, but the more uh, having someone between you and your customer means you can't track them as much. So from a business perspective, they're saying, I want the data to be able to track Jeremy and Mark more accurately. 
But as a user, we want Apple or Google in between us. Uh, Apple definitely more so than Google, given the business models, because they're that blocker. They're preventing us from uh, having our privacy unknowingly breached in that people are tracking our transactions online. Um, and that's part of the big thing we get through the App Store. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that having that broker in between is another major thing that, that dramatically helps with privacy just from a, um, or not only privacy, but I guess security as well. I mean, I never use anything but PayPal on most mm -hmm. sites that are not amazon.com, right? Yep. So, because yeah. I just, I don't trust some little site. I mean, actually the funny thing is, I just bought something that I was almost, it was from one of those, um, uh, what's that, the, the store there, the, the, I, I, my, my mind is drawing a blank here, but the, um, uh, the, the Shopify, right? It was a Shopify yep. store. And uh, essentially Shopify says, yeah, anybody can build a store. Like we don't, I don't even think they check. Um, and I may mm -hmm. be wrong on that. So I apologize if that's wrong, but it seems like it because there's a lot of stories of Shopify scams. And there was yep. this thing listed um, and it was actually a pool for, it was one of those index pools, those, uh, those temporary pool yeah, things. Sincere. We just needed something. You couldn't buy them anywhere unless it was like, you know, thousands of dollars, which was crazy. So I saw this deal and I'm like, I'm going to buy it, but I know it's a scam. I'm almost a hundred percent sure it's a scam, but I used PayPal and I mm -hmm. knew that it, the worst case scenario was I'd have to send a few emails back and forth and I'd, and I'd get my money back. Um, it yeah. turned out to be a scam. But if I hadn't, if I had given that person my credit card number, who even knows if that credit card number would have went to a valid processor or if it would have been mm -hmm. run through some third party thing, or it would have had thousands of dollars of transactions across you know, the dark web or whatever. Um, so yeah. I do think that there is a tremendous amount of added benefit to having that, that middleman protect your privacy. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's an interesting example. And I'm sorry that you got scammed. And I understand, you know, especially in these times, trying to get those items in, um, you know, because at the start of the pandemic, it was like basketball nets, trampolines, bikes, like right. you couldn't get this stuff, right? Um, exactly. and, and the nice thing is, you know, PayPal as a middleman works. There's some downside when you're the collector from PayPal, for sure. Um, but Visa and MasterCard have the same uh, protections in place. It's very rare that you're going to be financially on the hook. But the difference is, it's a pain in the butt to go back and you know reuse where you have your normal subscriptions charging to your credit card and things like that to redo all of that. So even though you're not exactly. out money necessarily, you're still out time and frustration. Um, you know, and that's happened to me pre-pandemic when I was traveling. Literally one time when I crossed uh, the U.S. customs here in Canada, we we cross in the um, airport itself, um, and I found out you know when I tried to buy uh, some food that oh no my credit card had been uh, blocked. And so I had to get you know a new one shipped and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't out any money. I was just out frustration. Uh, but there is important uh, aspects, you know, both advantages and disadvantages uh, to the middleman. But specifically when it comes to that online, you know, you you great example there of you know knowing that there's a good potential for scam, understanding the risk of okay, a couple emails. It's not that big of an impact to you right. to try, you know, in the upside where if they did actually ship you the inflatable pool, you're you're you know you're the hero to the kids, uh, right, and, exactly. and happy and cool. Uh, so it's finding that balance. And again, you know, like we said in the intro is is really for me, it's there's no bad decision. It's just making it explicitly. So you just gave a fantastic example of explicitly understanding that you might get scammed here. There's a high chance of it. But then you used a way of protecting yourself. You know, you had four options to pay and you picked the one that was going to provide you the most amount of protections because you were aware of the situation. And I think that's commendable. I think the flip side is most people are unaware on that scale uh, of what we're doing in the online world of the types of ramifications of those decisions. Right. And so speaking about unaware, I mean, one thing that I think 
people might not understand when they make financial transactions or they share data. Um, they're often giving it to a machine, right? And we think it's super mm -hmm. secure if we just slide our credit card in um, with a little chip on it, or if I enter my information on a, on a website somewhere, or I, I save my password or something like that, and I know, oh, it's only saved locally. Um, the problem with people is people, right? And I love people, don't get me wrong. But once you introduce the human factor into any of these security or privacy issues or, or potential privacy issues, um, it, it gets exacerbated because people are fallible and people make mistakes. And, and one of the, the I think the, the most important um, one that happened recently is this Twitter hack. Uh, and, yeah. and people are like, oh, Twitter got hacked. Well, it depends on what you mean by hacked because nobody brute forced into and broke into the system and figured out somebody else's password. They literally scammed people who had access to this stuff. So so what are those, you know, it was a social engineering attack. So what are, how do you prevent against that? Yeah, and this is the challenge. And, and so one of the things, um, you know, for, for those of you, uh, people who look into sort of the, the history of my work, I'm always feel like I'm an outlier because a popular sort of uh, um, feeling in the security community is what you just said to the extreme, that the users are a problem. You know, everything would be great if we didn't have users. Um, well, we wouldn't have jobs if we didn't have users. So, you know, right, put that exactly. aside. Uh, but the reality is, is people very rarely are trying to do something, um, you know, in their daily work to cause harm. Uh, so criminals, obviously, that's their daily work. They are trying to cause harm. Um, so, you know, this case of Twitter was that the people who were doing the, the support work and uh, were just trying to support users and to to get their job done. Right. And um, now it turns out that Twitter was a little lax and they had about 1500 people with access to the support tools. Um, and but if you step back for a second, and go, OK, ignore the hack. It totally makes sense if you're running a service that supports 330 million people that you as a business are going to need some tools to be able to reset passwords, to adjust email addresses, to give people access back to their accounts because someone's going to forget their password and not have access to the email that they signed up with legitimately. Um, they're going to you know, change phone numbers so they don't have the SMS backup like stuff happens, especially when you have 300 million plus users. So to build a tool to help you deliver better customer service. 100% makes sense. The problem in this case, as you pointed out, is that it was also a vulnerability because the uh, controls around it, the process around it was a little too lax. These cyber criminals didn't do any crazy hack. And I think if there's one fallacy on the security side of things, it's it's that. And it's partially because of all the TV and movies, which makes for great TV and movies. But very right. rarely do big names hacks actually use anything remotely resembling state-of-the-art hacking. Nine times out of 10, it's a phishing email. Um, actually, 92% of all malware infections start with a phishing email uh, because they work. They're super easy to, to send and to confuse people. Um, I always remember a talk uh, from Adrienne uh, Porter-Felt, who's at Google. Um, she was in the Chrome team at the time, and she they'd done a massive million-plus person study. And it basically, the key result was nobody reads security prompts. So it doesn't matter what you prompt the user, they're just going right. to click OK. Which, you know, is 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 frustrating because you're trying to educate them and move forward. So with with the Twitter thing, it was just a social engineering attack. And um, they got some extra access by, you know, basically just tricking a support employee, which then got them access into the Slack in the Slack channel uh, to make the support team's lives easier. They had some credentials posted that said, like, hey, to get into the big super tool here, here here's the login. Here's the URL. Um, and which I, I mean, you totally understand uh, working with a team that you drop stuff in Slack like that all the time because the assumption is you're in a private room. 
right? And in this case, that wasn't it. And, you know, thankfully, it was a very visible hack. So it got shut down very, very quickly. Uh, but it's it's these kind of things that I think are interesting, because when, you know, my point in, the, in that particular video was, most people who use an account, a, assume it's theirs when you're just actually using it, you're renting it, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. And they don't aren't aware that there's a support infrastructure behind it that gives people access legitimately, because if that was you who lost your password, you'd want access back to your account. You've worked hard to grow your social media following. So it, it's, yeah. again, being aware of those trade-offs. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening within their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reductions in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. Epsigon aggregates, unifies, analyzes, and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase development efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. As a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. Check it out at epsigon.com slash serverless chats. Yeah, and I mean, and I, again, there's so many examples of, of things where people are sharing a lot of information that's getting recorded and they probably... <laughs> aren't even aware that it's being recorded. I mean, every time you talk oh. to Alexa, Alexa cancel, because you're just gonna uh, <laughs> come up on me. Um, and uh, and then every time you talk to Siri, uh, mm -hmm. every time you type on your computer, if you have Grammarly installed, mm -hmm. all of that information is being sent up somewhere. And so yep. when you introduce, even if you have the best security protocols in the world and, and you're in AWS cloud or in Google cloud and you're all locked down, um, you still have that potential that that somebody could could simply you know ac accidentally share their password to some super tool like you said, and your information <laughs> gets shared. I mean, think about S three buckets, right? Apparently, S three buckets are just it, it has been like the biggest you know one of the biggest uh, or I guess the Capital One breach, right? Is this idea mm -hmm. that you just you just make your your things public or you make it easy for them to be copied or whatever it is? You don't do it on purpose, but those are human mistakes that are causing mm -hmm. those issues. Yeah, and there's and there's a lot of trust there. So there's a couple examples that I think are really interesting that you gave there. So the voice assistants are popping up more and more in court cases uh, where the law enforcement uh, are actually uh, requesting access uh, through legal process to the records uh, of what uh, they have heard. Because Alexa is a good example. Um, you know, I'm sorry if I triggered yours uh, or any of the audiences. Um, the uh, I have a good voice for that, apparently. Um, but the... Um, the if you go into the app you'll see actually a history of all your commands everything you've asked for it and whether or not it because you can provide feedback like yes it gave me what i wanted no it didn't um you had mentioned uh for uh keyboards on phones and stuff right so grammarly is a good example um when ios started allowing keyboards uh third-party keyboards i thought it was really interesting because one of the prompts that people don't read that pops up uh says you are providing this keyboard with full access to everything you type so everything you literally are typing, even if you delete it, is being sent to the cloud and back. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. 
But if you don't know that that's happening, you can't make that choice. And that's really the thrust of a lot of what I'm doing is understanding that work. Because at the end of the day, one of the things I hear often on the privacy side is, well, I have nothing to hide. I don't care. Um, and a lot of the time that may be true, but you need, still need to be aware of those data flows that are going out uh, from you uh, out into the world. And that, that's where things get more and more complicated the more technology we add. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. All right, so let's let's take this into the serverless realm here because this is a serverless yeah. podcast, but I think this is super exciting because I, I, I'd be interested to get your perspective on where serverless and privacy meet. And I think if we take a step mm -hmm. back and we look at security first, I think we know, I think this has been demonstrated that the security of a serverless application, just based on the shared responsibility model, how little you need to do from a maintaining a server standpoint, from even just, there's no there's no direct TCP IP access into a Lambda function, for example, right? Like that all yeah. has to be routed through a control plane. So you just have all these levels of security. So the majority of the security concerns from a serverless perspective are going to come down to application level security. And we have talked about it mm -hmm. at length. But I think what people, you know, and again, people make application security mistakes all the time, right? I mean, and the social engineering yeah, aspect yeah, yeah. of it is something where giving someone your password into an admin that you build for your customers. Um, but I want to I take it uh, a little bit further and, and go beyond just this idea of, you know, maybe we make an application mistake. Maybe something gets compromised. Maybe someone shares a password here. Yeah. So from a serverless perspective, if I'm building a serverless application, how do I start building bulkheads? around my application to protect some of this private user data. Yeah, and that's a really good uh, setup. It's a good explanation. I 100% agree. By default, serverless gives you a better chance at security uh, because you're pushing almost all the work to the service provider, right? Like that's a huge advantage, which is why I'm a massive advocate of, of serverless designs. Um, so maybe it's easier just to clarify for the for the users as well, because we were bouncing back and forth, focusing on the privacy, talking a bit about security. I said you can't right. have one without the other. And really security is a set of controls that allow you as the builder or even you as the user to uh, dictate who and what has access to that data. And then privacy is just the flip side of that, of me going, this data is about me, and I wanna know who I'm entrusting it to. And security is then the controls that, you you know, if I entrust you with my, my personal information, security is then the controls you're putting on top of that information to enable privacy, right? So they're, they're intertwined, they are linked concepts. So if you as a builder are creating an application that is handling personal data, um, or handling any type of data, you're fighting this uh, inherent sort of uh, conflict of, of nature in that we've been taught as developers uh, for the last few years that the more data we have, the better, right? The more data that we're tracking, the more awareness, like we can get better uh, fine tuning on our application. We can increase the performance. We can increase the reliability. Uh, we get a better operational view the more data we have. From a privacy and a security point of view, the more data you have, the bigger the liability you also have. So you need right. to first go through and make sure you understand what type of data you have. So cold start time on a Lambda, um, you know, uh, total route time for a, a request, those kinds of things aren't sensitive to specific data. They're sp uh, sensitive somewhat to your application. But in general, that's not something you need to take, uh, you know, you don't need to lock it in the vault that's encased in concrete thrown into the ocean so that nobody can ever get to it. <laughs> if I'm dealing with your social security, that's a far more uh, private piece of information that I need to take further steps to, to protect. If I'm dealing with your health record, same kind of thing. So it's first step for anybody building any application is just listing the types of data you're actually um, hosting, 
and processing, and then mapping out where in the application they're required. So for permissions, we have um, on the security side, the principle of least privilege, which is essentially, I'm only gonna give you the bare minimum permissions you need to access something, which is the S3 problem at its core. When you create an S3 bucket, uh, only the user or entity that created it has access rights by default, and then everything else has to be granted. And all of these breaches, billions and billions of records over the last few years, have been because somebody made a mistake in granting too many permissions. Um, so understanding you know, what the data is and where it actually needs to flow, um, and saying, you know what, this health information isn't gonna flow to the standard logs. Right? We're going to keep it in a Dynamo database, and that Dynamo database, like in that table, is going to be encrypted with this KMS key, and it's actually going to break our single table design because this information is sensitive enough to merit its own table because I don't want to take the risk of encrypting uh, column by column because I think I might make, mess that up. So I'm going to just separate it completely to make it a logical uh, uh, separation to make it easier. So really, it's step one is mapping that out and then restricting the um, breadth of that data or where that data touches. And that does a huge amount of effort, like a huge amount of the, the work to maintain privacy right there. Right. Yeah. And so if you're if you're taking that data, though, and, and you're and again, I think this makes complete sense that you're, you're saying, look at what it is you're saving. If I'm saving somebody's, mm -hmm. you know, preference, if, even if I'm saving somebody's like whether they like a particular brand or something like that, how, mm -hmm. you know, is that really personal, identi personally identifiable information? Is that something that I have to lock away and encrypt or, you know, can I be more lax with that? What about usernames and passwords and things like that? And I think that all makes sense that you know, think about it that way. But I, I think where I, I'm curious where this goes is you only have so much control over that data if you are saving it in DynamoDB, right? Mm -hmm. If you are capturing it through uh, Cloud, uh, CloudWatch logs because it's coming in and maybe it's coming in and it's not encrypted. I mean, even though you are using an SSL or TS, uh, TL, uh, T, TLS, um, yeah. you, know, you, you come through and it, uh, you know, in the, in the information is encrypted from the user's computer or their browser into the the inner workings of AWS, for example. Then once it gets into that Lambda function, that's all decoded, that's all unencrypted, right? That's all yep. ready for you to do whatever you need to do. So then you need to take that and put that into a database or send that off somewhere or call an API or any of these other things. When you do that and you save that data into, uh, let's just start with DynamoDB, there are backups. There's automatic backups, right? There's the, the, again the CloudWatch logs. Like so, this data is going all different places. So that seems like a lot of effort to make sure that a credit card number, mm -hmm. or social security number, or anything that you want to be very careful about, that you have to take a lot of extra steps to make sure that that is that that's encrypted. Yeah, and I think this is you know spot on example. Um, and I think this is the number one failing of the security community over the last 20 years or so. And there's a lot of logical reasons for it, um, is that right now the vast majority of security work, so that security work to ensure that, that privacy of, of data um, is done after the fact, right? So if you think of your DevOps wheel, um, and you've got the development side and the ops side, security exists almost entirely in the ops side, which means we're taking whatever has already been built and then doing the best thing we can. So we end up with this very traditional um, castle wall sort of scenario of like, I've made a safe area, drop things into it, and they will be safe 
from anything outside of that wall, but unsafe from anything inside that wall. And, you know, that's had mixed results, I think is a generous way of saying it. Mm -hmm. um, and realistically, if we, you know, if you think of security as really a software quality issue, um, and we know, you know, you're not gonna do testing only in production, you're gonna do testing early stages, you're gonna have unit tests, you're gonna have integration tests, you're gonna have deployment and functionality tests, you're gonna do blue green deployments to make sure that things are running before they hit prod. There's a whole bunch of testing we do as builders before we get to actually interacting with users. We need the same thing from security because what you just mentioned is a lot if you're thinking about it once you've designed the solution, but if you're designing the solution with those questions in your mind as you're going forward, it's actually not a lot of additional effort to map out these security things as you're sitting there. So you, if we're mm -hmm. starting up a new uh, application, you know, me and you, um, you know, we're doing Jaren and Mark's super cool app, right? And we go, okay, we're gonna start logging in users. Well, we look at that and go, well, for, at the bare minimum, we have a username and a password. So we're going to have to do something with that. We need to know what that flow is. So maybe we're going to loop in something like Cognito. Maybe we go, you know what, Cognito is not quite where we need it to be. So we're going to go to a third party auth zero. So now we're outside of, if we were building it in AWS, now we're outside of our cloud into a third party with a whole different set of permission sets. But if we're designing that from day one, we can map that out and go, okay, we know we get TLS from the browser to Auth0. Um, we know that TLS doesn't actually guarantee we're talking to Auth0. It just guarantees that a communication is secure in transit from A to B. It doesn't tell you who A or B are, which is a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a mistake a lot of people make. But then we go, okay, we're going to Auth0. Fine. We've got a secure connection from the user there. We verify who that user is from Auth0. We, our app will verify Auth0, this the following method, um, and then we're gonna take that data and we're gonna make sure that we don't actually store it, that we don't actually log um, the user because what we've done is we've never taken the password out of Auth0, we've just gotten a token. And now we, we map it there. So I think, you know, if you go after the fact to try to do this, uh, it's really difficult. So even if we just simplify the example down to encryption, um, the thing, yeah. you know, you always see Werner's, uh, Werner's shirt, you know, uh, dance like nobody's watching, encrypt like everybody is. Love that shirt. Yeah. It's so nerdy. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but if you take an existing application and say, okay, we're going to go encrypt everything in transit and at rest, that's an annoying, massive project that has no direct visible benefit to the customer. It's really hard to get those things past the product manager because you're like, hey, I want to take, you know, four sprints to do this work. That will save us potentially if something may happen bad, like if a cyber criminal attacks us, we will be protected, but our customer's not going to see anything for four sprints because uh, we're not doing any feature work. That's a hard sell. Whereas when you're designing that out of gate one and you say, I'm just going to add a parameter and it's going to encrypt everything in transit and I'm going to add a KMS parameter to the Lambda and everything's going to be encrypted at rest. Uh, that took um, five minutes and we're done. Uh, nobody's going to bat an eye and you get the same end result. So it's really about planning ahead, I think. Yeah, well, I think security first. I mean, I think that's the first thing it, just with the cloud and so many of these problems that happen from breaches that are, again, not necessarily a vulnerability of the cloud. It's just more of these social engineering things um, yeah. that, again, thinking about security right off the bat is is a huge thing. And and I guess here's another thing. And I know that like DynamoDB, for example, is in, you, you can do encryption at rest, right? And that mm -hmm. things like SQS and SNS, I think those have in, uh, encryption in transit as well. And right, so there's a lot of that security built in. But again, all of those really great tools that the cloud provides and the encryption and whatever else, that goes away the second you build an admin utility that someone can log into and just query that data, right? Yep. So 
so where, what do you need to do around that? Like what, what should you be thinking in terms of, I mean, are there multiple layers? Should we thinking, you know, you always hear things like tier one, tier two support, th things like that. You know, are those levels of access that they have to your private data? Like where, where would you, or how would you approach that when you're building a new application? Yeah, and, and the tiering system is frustrating as is for a lot of users. Uh, a lot of it does have that. It's about reducing the, you know, if we use the AWS term, it's about reducing the blast radius. You don't want everyone in support to be able to blow up everything. Um, you know, and if you look at the, the Twitter hack was actually an interesting example. Somebody raised the question and said, why didn't uh, the president's account get hacked? Um, you know, why wasn't it used as part of this? And because it has additional protections around it. And um, because, right. you know, it's the leader of the free world, ostensibly. So you want to make sure that that's not the average, um, you know, temporary employee on a support contract being able to adjust that. So the, the tiering actually is a, is a strong play, um, but also understanding, um, you know, that the uh, defense in depth is something we talk about a lot in security. And it gets kind of a bad rap, but essentially it means don't put all your eggs in one basket. So don't use one control to stop just one thing. Um, so you want to uh, do separation of duties. You want to have multiple controls to make sure that not everybody can uh, can do certain things. But you also want to uh, you know, still maintain that good customer service. And I think that's where, um, again, it comes down to uh, a very pragmatic business decision. If you have two sprints to get something out the door and you go, well, I'm going to build a proper admin tool or you're just going to write a simple command that your team can run that will give them the access. You're just gonna write a, a command that does the job. And you know what, in your head, you always say the same thing. You put it in your in your ticket notes, you know, you put it in your JIRA and you say, we'll come back to this and fix it later. Later, later never happens. So most admin <laughs> tools are this hack collection of stuff just to get the job done. And I totally get it from a business perspective. It makes sense, you need to go that route. But from a security and privacy perspective, you need to really um, think holistically. And I think this is a question I get asked on, uh, often. Actually, somebody just asked me this on my YouTube channel the other day. They said, I'm looking for a cybersecurity degree and I can't find one. Um, all I can find is information security. What, what's the deal? And I said, well, actually, what you're looking for is information security in the uh, industry, and especially in the vendor space, we talk cybersecurity because that's uh, typically the uh, system security. So locking down your laptop, locking down your tablet, locking down your Lambda function, that's cybersecurity because we're taking some sort of cyber thing um, and right. applying security controls to it. Information security as an academic study, as a field of study in general, is looking at the flow of information as it transits through systems. Well, part of those systems are, are people, are the wetware. Right. Or the fact that people print it out and go, uh, you know, and this is a big challenge with the work from home, as you said, well, like your home environment isn't necessarily secure. And you said, well, yeah, it has different risk models. But the fact that I can connect into my corporate system and download a bunch of stuff and then print it, um, that's information that still needs to be protected. So I think if you think information security, you tend to start to include these people and go, wait a minute. You know, Joe from support, we're paying him, you know, 15 bucks an hour, but he's got a mountain of student debt. He's never going to get out of it. That's a vulnerability that we need to address, not right. from locking it down, but like help that person out and make them feel included, make them feel, uh, you know, as part of the team so that they're not a risk when a cyber criminal rolls up with some cash and says, hey, let give me access to the support tools. Right. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to talk about New Relic. I know, when it comes to things like observability and tracing, you're probably thinking I should talk about Datadog, Prometheus, or even OpenTelemetry. And a few months ago, I would have totally agreed with you. But New Relic did something a little out there. They literally reworked 
everything. They've actually been listening when people talk about blind spots, being stuck with a dozen different tools, or getting hit with hidden costs. So first, they went open source, making it so that you can actually instrument whatever you need. Then, they made it so you can monitor your whole entire stack in one place, including your serverless workloads. You can use telemetry data from any source for ridiculously cheap, and there's just one UI with all the tools you need. Plus, they've completely changed their pricing to a consumption-based model so that you can easily predict your bill. Now, I love this pricing model because it scales as my cloud applications scale, just like with serverless. And best of all, there's a perpetual free tier with one user and 100 gigabytes per month, totally free. You can try it and make sure it works for you before it costs you anything. So if you want observability made simple, New Relic is definitely worth another look. Check out their platform at newrelic.com. And the other thing too, when you're talking about um, I guess people having access to things, um, you know, one is having access to data, right? And so if you mm -hmm. have an admin account that can create other accounts, right? And you get into the admin account or the admin account does everything, for example, um, that's really hard to, um, uh, you know, really hard to prevent against if you let that go, right? Um, mm -hmm. But there's another vulnerability with admin accounts, especially when it comes to the cloud, is anytime somebody has access to like a production environment, right? So with AWS, if people are familiar, and I'm sure this is true with all the other cloud providers, I mean, you have multiple logins that are called roles in, uh, you know, in AWS, and, and you can grant access to certain things. And the easiest thing to do is when someone's like, hey, I can't, I can't mess with that VPC, or I'm trying to change something here, I'm trying to do that. All right, fine, I'll just give you admin access, right? So admin yeah. access gives you everything except for billing access for some reason, mm -hmm. um, but it gives you everything in the AWS cloud. And I'm not saying, I mean, you need that. Somebody needs to have admin access at some point. But when you're writing code that could mm -hmm. potentially expose data by maybe having a vulnerability in an admin tool or just giving too much control in an admin tool, um, there needs to be a process that separates out you know, the development environments, the staging environments, and then that production environment where all that actual you know, sort of production user data is going to go. Um, so mm -hmm. I always look at this as like, a, you know, and maybe people don't think about it this way, but to me, CICD, having a really good, whether it's Git flow or something like that, that has controls in place where there are very, very, very few people who have keys to that main production account. Everything yeah. else is handled through some sort of, you know, workflow with approval processes and things like that. And I mean, to me, that is, that is like the staple of saying you want a secure environment, you have to set up CI/CD. Yes, 100%. Um, so my general rule of thumb is nobody should ever touch production. Um, systems mm -hmm. should touch production. And so the you know pushback I get on that a lot, especially for people who are still in um, virtual machines or instances, are like, well, no, I need to get data off of there. You should have a system that pulls data out and logs it centrally so you can analyze because if you need to make a change, you push it through the pipeline because not only is that better for security, that's better for development as a practice in general. Because, uh, you know, so for those of you who are watching uh, this episode, you can see how much gray and white is in my beard. Um, uh, for those of you just listening, think like Santa levels of white. Um, and I've been doing this a long time and the inevitably, you know, I used to be a keyboard jockey doing the Saturday night maintenance windows for nationwide networks. And you're typing the same thing into system after system after system. You had your checklist, you know, you did everything you possibly could to prevent yourself from making a mistake. 
you still ended up making at least two mistakes per change window, uh, you know, per Saturday night, because it's late night, you already worked all week, you're only human, um, mistakes happen. And enforcing uh, consistencies through a CICD pipeline, not only gives you the security benefits, but it gives you the reliability that if a mistake did happen, it's the same mistake consistently across everything, which means you can fix it a lot easier. It's not that there was a different typo in every system. There's the same thing on on every system, so you can roll forward. um, And that's an absolute critical thing to do because a lot of the time people see security as this extra step you need to take as this conflicting thing that's going to slow you down. At the end of the day, security is trying to achieve the same thing you are as a builder. We want stable, reliable systems that only do what you want them to, that only act as intended, as opposed to some a vulnerability or a mistake being made that people could leverage into making that system do something unintended. And that, you know, CICD pipeline is absolutely critical. Uh, You mentioned roles. There are equivalents in GCP and Azure as well. My big thing is accounts should have no permissions at all, uh, other than the ability to assume a role. So if you can assume a role as an account or as an entity, then for specific tasks, you have a role for every task. So if I need to roll a new build into the CICD pipeline, don't give me permanent rights to kick off builds. Let me assume a role to kick off a build, to kick off the pipeline, because then I don't make a mistake. But also right. we get an explicit log saying at you know this time I assumed this role, it's cryptographically signed, it shows that chain of my system made that request in the back end. And then after assuming that role, I then kicked off this build. And you just get this nice fidelity, this nice tracking for observability on the back end. We're so obsessed on observability and traceability in production. You need it as to what who's feeding what into the system. Right. And then that way I don't make a mistake and we get clarity. So it's it's roles are a massive win if you use them right. Yeah. And I think things like CloudTrail and some of the other tools that are built into AWS, I'm sure a lot of people aren't looking at them, <laughs> but uh, they should be. Um, but so yeah. the other thing, you know, it's funny you mentioned this idea of, you know, doing late night support. So I think we've all been there. I mean, if you're if you're as old as us, I have as much gray as you do. Um, and it just I try to hide it a little bit. But um I remember doing that as well. And I still have some EC2 instances that I have to deal with every now and then. And one of the most frustrating things about trying to do anything is, and and I think this is why security, people try to find workarounds for it, is because security creates friction, right? So the more friction you have, um, you can't access a a MySQL database uh, in a VPC from outside unless you set up a VPN or some other tunnel that you can get into, right? I think about every time I log into um, uh, every time I log into my EC2 instances. First thing I do, sudo su, right? Because like yeah. I just know yeah. I don't want to try to go to the logs directory and not be able to get to a logs directory because um, you know security mm-hmm. is preventing me from doing that. And and so again, being able to have um, uh, ways in which it's almost like people have to build those additional tools, right? So you mentioned only machines should be touching these things or systems Mm -hmm. should be interacting with it, but those are systems that somebody has to set up. Those are systems that somebody has to understand, right? So again, I I totally agree with you. I'm 100% with you. It's just one of those things where it's like these tools are not quite as, uh, they're not quite as prominent or they don't seem quite as prominent um, as some of these other workflow tools are. Again, like even CICD, you could build a whole bunch of security measures into CICD, um, but I think people just don't. Yeah, and I think, so there's, I agree. Um, and, And so I'll give you a good example that I can't remember who told me, but after a talk at an AWS summit two years ago, somebody gave me a brilliant example that they had set up that I thought was a really good, um, demonstration of how security should be. Now, it almost never is, 
but it should be. Yeah. And it was exactly that problem was that they still had cases where people had to log into EC2 instances um, and they were trying to figure it out. They, you know, they knew they couldn't just say no. So what this team had set up was uh, a very simple little uh, ping, little automation loop that as soon as somebody logged in, somebody SSH into an EC2 instance, um, CloudWatch yeah. logs would pick it up. It would fire off a Lambda and it would send a Slack message to that user. And it would provide a button and it would say, Jeremy, was this you logging into EC2 instance ID, blah, yeah. blah, blah? Yes or no? And if you hit yes, it would then provide a second little message that said just like, hey, we're trying to cut down on this. Uh, can you let us know what your use case was? What were you missing? Why did you have to, to dive in? You know, Why did you have to log in? But if you said no, it would fire yeah. off an incident. Uh, it would kick off the incident response process because somebody logged in as you and it wasn't you. And I thought that was a really good example of saying like, look, we know we want to be here. We can't get there yet. So we're going to yeah. take a nice little friction-free response of instead of you know sending out the standard survey to everybody and be like, how many EC2 instances do you log into? And, yeah, and like, exactly. nobody cares, but catch yeah. them in the moment. Um, and, and I think yeah. you know, further to, to the bigger question of, you know, yes, somebody has to build those tools. Um, somebody has to develop those. And again, if you try to get that past a product manager, it's not going to happen because there's no custom, right. direct customer benefit. It's against a theoretical issue down the road. The challenges or the failures on the security side, for the longest time, the security teams have been firefighting nonstop and have developed this rightfully so reputation of being grumpy, of saying no, of putting roadblocks in place, of preventing people from achieving their goals. So people just ignore them or work around them. That's not what we as a security community need to do. We need to work directly with teams. We need to hear a thing like you just said and said, okay, no problem, we're gonna build that for you. We're gonna make sure we build some sort of flow that gives you, uh, you know, the information you need in a way that we're comfortable with from a security side so that there's no friction in place. And that is a huge challenge because it's cultural and the security teams continue to firefight uh, and can't kind of get their head above water long enough to go, oh, like we could do this in a way better way instead of just continually right. frustrating ourselves and everyone we work with. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the idea of being proactive versus reactive yeah. um, would be very nice. I know every time you get that thing where you're like, okay, something is not right. You just, you can hear everyone, everybody in the, in the IT or everybody, all the developers just sigh at once because you're like, oh, this is going to be a long night. We're going to yeah. figure out what exactly is happening here. Exactly. Um, all right. So let's go back to privacy for a second um, sure. or maybe for more than a second. The thing that I think another or another piece of this that is important is we are saving data into somebody else's systems. All right. We mentioned DynamoDB. We mentioned, you know, SQS and, and some of these things are encrypted and that's great. Um, but you've got GCP, you've got um, you've got Tencent, you've got Alibaba, you've got Microsoft Azure, you've got Auth0, right? So you're saving data personal data into other people's systems. So I guess sort of where my question is, is from a privacy standpoint, I can put all these controls in place and I can say, oh yeah, I've done all my tiering. I have all the security workflows. I've got CICD set up. My admins are locked down and I know whatever. Um, but where does you know your responsibility as a developer start and end when it comes to privacy when it's being saved on somebody else's system? Yeah, and and... That's a very good question because the there are legal responsibilities and then there's 
the right thing, quote unquote, you know, right. for various definitions of the right thing. Um, I think most users' expectation is that they have a modicum of control over their um, over their data. Now, the interesting thing here is we start to get into a little international differences. Um, so people who've been listening, you know, to the episode so far have probably figured out that I'm Canadian by my accent, um, you know, and Canada has a very strong privacy regulation. We're not quite as strong as the I, EU. I did not say honest. tell us, tell us a boot. Tell us about yourself, though. <laughs> Which is fair. <laughs> um, you know, but, and, and I mean, I, I so the Canadian perspective, we have a legal framework and an ex a different expectation. The European expectation is completely different. The outlier when it comes to privacy is actually the United States. Now, the interesting thing is the United States is also the generator and the creator of the vast majority of the technology that the rest of us use. So uh, when we look at the legal requirements, there's different things. When we look at what you should be doing and what the expectation is, it really comes down to cultural. So what uh, a European citizen would expect to happen with their data is very different than somebody in the United States because there is a, a cultural and illegal expectation in the EU for their data to be treated very, very differently. So the generic answer is when you're building out serverless uh, applications specifically, um, you need to make sure that whatever level of data you're dealing with, um, the service that you're leveraging can support the controls you want around that data. So if we look at like um, PCI, which is the uh, payment card industry uh, framework, there is a legal requirement if you're taking credit cards to have certain security controls in place, you need to be PCI certified, which is why a lot of smaller businesses just go to a provider. Um, but bigger mm -hmm. businesses, it's worth your time to set yourself up like this. There are legal requirements uh, for um, the controls around it, which means if you're building in a serverless uh, design, regardless of the cloud you're using, the aspects of your design that are processing payment cards, so processing MasterCard, Visa, Amex, need to be on services that are also PCI certified. So you can't achieve the certification if the service you're building on isn't also certified. Um, so there's that aspect of it in general that you need to, to sort of the, go with uh, that compliance. Um, but it, it's really tricky because it comes down to what do you want to do versus what do you need to do? Um, and that that's sort of, it, it's a difficult thing to respond to because sometimes there's very real legal penalties for not complying. Uh, but the good news is from from serverless aspect is that the shared responsibility says that you're always uh, responsible for two things, configuring the services you use, right? So all the providers give you little knobs and dials that you can change, you know, so you can encrypt or not encrypt, you can, you know, optimize for this or that you need to understand and configure that service. But you are always responsible for your data. Always. There is at no point do you cede responsibility for your data. Um, if you leverage uh, a third party, uh, so if you, if I'm the, the business and you're my user and you give me uh, personal information or information you want private, I am on the hook for it, regardless of who I use behind me. It's me. So I need to make right. sure that the services I'm leveraging in my serverless design have the controls that I'm comfortable with to make and follow through on that, that promise to you as a user. Um, and that changes, but it's always you. And you need to verify as a builder that you, you're leveraging services that meet your needs. Yeah. So you mentioned two separate things. You mentioned compliance mm -hmm. and you mentioned yeah. sort of legality or the legal aspect yeah. of things. So let's start with compliance for a second. So you mentioned sure. PCI, um, mm -hmm. but there are other compliance. There's SOC 2 and uh, ISO 9001 and 27001 yep. and things like that. All things that I 
only know briefly, but they're they're not really legal standards, right? They're more this idea of certifications, and some of them aren't even really certifications. They're more just like saying we're saying we follow all these rules. So there's a whole bunch of them, and again, I think what ISO twenty seven zero one eight is about personal data protection and some of these things. And they're rules that they follow. So I think these are really good standards to have um, and to be in place. So what what do we get? Because you said you have to make sure that your underlying infrastructure, you know, has the compliance that's required. So what types of compliance are we getting with the services from AWS and Google and Azure and that sort of stuff? And that's the first part of my serverless chat with Mark Nunnenkoven. Check out next week as we finish our conversation about serverless privacy and compliance. I want to give a huge thank you to Mark for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Epsigon and New Relic. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 71. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>